Welcome to the Innovate for Impact podcast. This podcast is for leaders in the social sector like you who want to make a difference. Each episode is packed with practical ideas on how you can be more innovative and create an even bigger social impact. We share our ideas on what you can do and also speak to leaders from the sector to share best practice. So let's get into it and let's talk impact. Welcome to the Innovate for Impact podcast. I'm Dan Bentley and I'm joined by Tracy Newman and today we've got a special guest, Sarah Pink. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, Dan. Hey, Sarah, do you want to just start off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what do you do? Yes. So I'm the director of the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University. I originally trained as an anthropologist and a documentary filmmaker. So that's all very fundamental to my practice, but my work is really focused around understanding our futures. So really understanding how people, technologies, emerging technologies and environmental futures are going to come together as we move forward. Providing new understandings in that space, which are really seeking to be realistic and plausible because my work accounts for people in those futures. And that's the area that's so frequently neglected. And this is what we're really excited about having you on the podcast today is to talk to us more about this, especially around how your job looks at technology and how it interacts with people. And we're interested to hear about some of the insights from your research around what do people really want with these emerging technologies? What is going to work? What's going to help people to adopt and use these new types of technology that are coming? So it's going to be a great conversation. But a little bit of context around why you're on the show is that you are speaking at a conference coming up soon, which is the Connecting Up Conference. It's on the 10th to the 13th of May in Melbourne. A lot of people in the sector know about this one. It is run every year. And yeah, you're going to be doing the innovation keynote. So we thought we'd get you on our podcast to talk a little bit about that. But also some of the stuff you're going to be talking about today will feature in your talk that you're doing on innovation there. So if you like what you hear today, come along and check out Sarah's talk there, where she's going to be talking about all sorts of other interesting bits and pieces from her work. If you're also hanging around there on the Friday, you can also come and see me talk there too if you are interested in that sort of thing, just in case you don't get enough from this podcast. I'll be doing a a panel discussion on the Friday there too. So it should be a pretty cool conference. Get down there and check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes around more about that conference if you'd like to grab a ticket and head on down. So anyway, Sarah, over to you. You want to tell us a little bit more about your work? Yes. So as an anthropologist, as I said, I'm focused on people, but thinking about people in relation to their futures with automated technologies and systems and environmental futures. And because I focus on people, one of my key interests is in human creativity. We are fundamentally creative and that's what takes us forward. That's what drives us forward into what's going to happen next. We need to be creative because human life, everyday life is full of contingency. We might think we know what's going to happen next, that something unexpected always happens. It might be so tiny we don't even realize, but we're always creatively filling in the gaps. That's our condition as creative beings. And creativity, of course, is not just exclusive to the people who work in the creative industries. Anybody can be creative and everybody is. So that takes me then to this question of innovation. What is innovation? Is innovation that new step that was taken, that big step taken when a new technology is launched into society? Or should we think about innovation rather differently? Is it really that big innovation that drives change and that determines our futures? Or are our futures much more shaped by that everyday creativity, that kind of innovation, creative mode of being that everybody possesses? Well, I would say we need to think about both those dimensions, right? New tech is continually launched into society. But what happens when it's launched into society? 
we need to be really realistic in terms of understanding how we can really make change with technology. How can we enable new technologies to participate in change processes with creative people rather than thinking that tech is going to do change to society and to people? That takes me on to one of the other key points I want to drive home at the conference and I want to mention today as well, which is there seems to be this kind of obsession right with automated futures. The future will be automated. Automated technologies will drive our future. They will make our lives more convenient, more comfortable. They will make everything easier. They'll make everything more efficient. They will make everything more sustainable. But can you really automate futures? There's something deeply incorrect and wrong about that phrase and that concept even. The futures are uncertain. They're not predetermined. Futures don't have an end point somewhere that you can look forward to. In our society, we project into futures. We try to predict futures, for example, quantitatively with big data analytics, etc. But the future is always contingent. It's always uncertain, like everyday life, like what I was just talking about. We're going to need to be just as creative in the future as we are in the present. We can't predict the future. So we also can't predict those contingent circumstances that are going to come about in the future. We can't predict exactly what modes of human creativity will actually be generated to solve the problems that we encounter in the future. We need to start thinking very differently about futures. We need to start thinking differently about people. We need to start thinking differently about what technology can do. So one of the things I've found across so many of my research projects, and I should probably first tell you a little bit about the projects that we have in the Emerging Technologies Lab. So we explore people, environment, and tech futures through a whole range of different themes. One of those is around energy futures. So we have one core project called Digital Energy Futures, in which we've been developing a new qualitative foresighting method that's actually published in our report called Digital Energy Futures, Foresights for Future Living. We're just about to publish our new forecasting scenarios, but which are modified through our work on human futures in that project. But we have another project about automation and the robotization of work, which looks at work futures and tech and real people, real situations. We have other projects that have looked at health futures. Of course, other parts of our work focus very specifically on sustainability futures, developing new pathways to net zero carbon emissions. And another big piece of our work, which is with Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making in Society, looks at the future automated transport mobilities. And I also work with my colleagues in Sweden on many of those projects as well. Across that whole range of projects, which you can see our scope is massive, right? So we have massive amounts of kind of research materials and we do field work with people all over the place. Massive the right amount of research that we're pulling together and and what's interesting about working across all those different projects is that you get insights that tell you a lot about what's happening at a more general level and some of those more universal characteristics of how people live with technology and how they're likely to live with technology in the future. And so one of the key findings for me from our work across those different projects is what I'm calling automated features, not automated futures. Features and futures they sound pretty similar, right? So I have to be really careful when I talk about automated features because I think that some people will just mishear and kind of misconstrue that as automated futures because that's what they kind of already have in their minds is what we're talking about. But the idea of automated features 
is very different. What we've discovered is that generally people, as I said, people are creative. People develop their own ways of doing things, their own systems. There are always patterns, always similarities between the things that different people do because we come from cultures and societies where we have so much in common. We need to acknowledge that inventiveness as people. We need to acknowledge the fact that people do actually want to design and invent and create their own futures and their ways forward. And in that sense, people like to stay in control. People have an enormous amount of in-depth social knowledge, knowledge about their social relations, knowledge about other people and how they feel and what they want to do, but also an enormous amount of place-based knowledge knowledge about the weather systems in which their particular homes are in, knowledge about how their particular homes and their particular technologies respond in particular situations, of course, the same knowledge about the people who surround them. And also, people are driven by core values and priorities. One of the core values that we see emerging over and over again are values concerning safety, guaranteeing one's own safety and safety of one's own family and friends. Values of care, caring for oneself, but of course, caring for one's families and friends and pets and other species who live around us and care for the environment. So if values like safety and care underpin people's priorities, can we then trust people to make informed and good decisions about how they use automated systems and technologies? Can we leave people to be in control of those systems and technologies rather than expect them all to be automated and do everything for us? Well, I say yes, of course. We need to invest in our ethics and our responsibility to enable people in everyday lives to care for themselves and for their environments through the ways in which they use technologies. So that's why I say automated features, not automated futures. I think people are very interested in aspects of automation. There's certainly some aspects of our everyday lives that we would like to automate. There are also aspects of our everyday lives which depend on automation. So if you want to get an air quality reading, you have to depend on automated system where sensor technologies are actually reading data and relaying it to you. If you want to learn about the temperature within your home, again, you're depending on those kinds of automated technologies to actually collect data and to interpret that data using automatic systems. There are many ways in which we can use automated technologies. And it's the same with self-tracking technologies. I've done a lot of work about wearables and self-tracking tech. Mm -hmm. But people want to be able to gather the knowledge that those automated systems and technologies can provide them. And then they want to make their own decisions based on that information. Because of course, those technologies and systems, so we might have a, an automated system that's evaluating all kinds of things around, around our environment. And that system might say, oh, I want to close all of your windows now, or I want to put your air conditioning on, or I want to do this. And you say, well, I don't want you to do that because actually I need that for a certain reason. I need to have that on or I need to have that off because I know more about the people who live in my home, what their specific health needs are, what their specific social needs are. I know which rooms they might about to use, even though they're using those ones at the moment. And then also you might suddenly be in what we call a very kind of contingent situation that you, it was completely unexpected and you need to be able to make your own decisions and act when you wish to. I mean, a great example around that is the question of electric cars. There's some really interesting um, stuff that I've been seeing in the tech news and tech development and innovations, you know, around the idea that we might, in the future, if we will have electric vehicles, then we might want them to charge automatically as we drive around using wireless charging technology and, and actually also to, to pay for all of that using invisible behind the scenes, trusted 
entities which are verified and validated through the blockchain. All of that could happen, you know, completely in the background and invisibly to, to me as I drove an electric vehicle around. But what we find in our research is that most people who participate in across various different research projects want to charge their future electric vehicles at home overnight. We want to know when our cars are fully charged. We want to know when they're ready. We want to know that if we wake up in the morning and decide to drive to Sydney from Melbourne, then the car's there and it's ready. Or if we would decide on the spur of the moment to do something else, or if we have to take someone to hospital at short notice or collect a child from school at short notice. We need to be able to prepare for those contingencies and to be able to make our own responses when we need to. So there are so many reasons why automated features can provide us with very much what we need to know and they can support us and perform some tasks for us if we wish them to. But control, creativity, safety and ethics are just fundamental in that story. And that's what I think we need to look to as we think about tech for our future. Yeah, I was going to say that. I feel like when I talk to friends and family about new technology, control is something that comes up a lot. And when I heard you talk about people want to charge their cars at home, I'm thinking I would way rather this thing charge itself. But I get what you're saying there. Like in practicality, if I'm going to change my behavior and this car is only charging itself up to drive me to the office or drive me to the local shops and I want to go to Sydney, like you said, then we have a bit of a problem because I've changed the predictability of my behavior. And as we know, life is a little bit like that. We often do the same things, but we don't always do the same things. The other one that I think of too is like self-driving cars. Give me that. If I can have some more time back in my life for productivity and I can sit there and read a book or I can watch something or even sleep (laughs) rather than be sitting there focusing on the road, give me that. But so many friends and family that I speak to quite often come back to that safety and that control and they like, they feel way more safe and in control when they're holding that steering wheel. Whereas as we know, when this technology does actually get there, a computer will be a much better driver than a human could ever be. Yeah. Look, I mean, that's absolutely right. And I think that self-driving cars are also a very interesting example of an emerging technology. I mean, they're an emerging technology that's been emerging for much longer than it was originally predicted to be as well. It was thought that self-driving cars would be on our roads around 2020. In fact, one of our projects, we thought we'd be doing research with people as they rode in self-driving cars around the roads in Sweden in 2020. So I think they're kind of a very interesting technology in that respect. And I do also wonder very much if they will really be used in the ways that were originally conceptualized. Will everybody have their own self-driving car or will they become part of a very different mix? The other, I suppose, danger around thinking around self-driving cars as being a future is that in a car culture like Australia, where so many people expect to have their own car, it also kind of offers an opportunity to just transition from one kind of privately owned vehicle to another. And of course, self-driving cars also bring an enormous amount of resource extraction. They need to be transported. They're not manufactured in Australia. There's a whole bigger story around all of these more sustainable technologies. That means they're not necessarily extremely sustainable in all of their dimensions. It's a really important thing for us to consider. I think, again, we've been doing lots of super interesting work about um, the future of air technologies. Again, we're in this situation at the moment where we found, especially as a result of the pandemic, people have been living life at home or work from home. People are becoming increasingly concerned about air quality at home for a whole load of reasons around kind of those kinds of allergens and dust and things that people might find difficult in terms of air quality at home. But of course, also in terms of people's concern about airborne viruses and air quality externally. So 
there's been an enormous increase in the amount of air purification, air filtration technologies that are being used in homes and, of course, also in schools and in organizations. So, you know, we're increasingly using new technologies to protect us from the air. And very ironically, the very production and transportation and running of those technologies is set to damage the air even further and be detrimental to the climate. And it's climate change that's effectively brought around these many of these problems around air quality. So it creates that kind of conundrum. Well, how do we protect ourselves from the air and keep ourselves safe from the air while keeping the air and protect, say, protecting it from us. And again, I think there's a temptation to say, well, of course, technology is the solution as well as the problem in that kind of scenario as well. But of course, it's not. It's certainly not the only solution. So we really need to think very carefully about how we design and use technologies in such ways that will protect us and keep us safe, but also will keep the environment safe. I guess some people will argue, well, that means no technology, but it can't mean no technology because we've gone down the tech path to such an extent now that we can't think that tech's going to solve the problem. But I think we need to factor tech into whatever solutions and human solutions and very considered solutions that we, we seek for as we go forward. Yeah, I think it's lovely that there is that deep consideration of how people interact with the technology because quite often the simplistic answer is, yes, technology, but that doesn't always take into consideration the human element of that technology. And that's the piece and the elements of your research that I find fascinating. And I think that knowing that that research is being carried out and when you share that research, it does actually give people that sense of comfort to know that some of the ideas that are being talked about really are just ideas and it's really up to people how they adopt that technology. And the technology companies need to actually think about how people want to interact with their technology, not just what can our technology do. And I think that that difference between technology features and technology features is, as you said, it's quite similar in sound, but very different in reality. Mm, if you're loving what you're hearing on our podcast, you should join us for one of our live events where we cover how you can build a more innovative and impactful organisation. We also have our very popular Co-Design for Impact Masterclass where I'll teach you how to run your own co-design projects and how to set them up for success. Spots are limited, so grab your ticket to this and our other events at impactoconsulting.com.au slash events. You talked about how there's lots of different methods of research that you use and lots of different ways that you're approaching these conversations. I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of those methods and some of the ways that you're finding to engage people about the work that you're doing. I'm an anthropologist, so my training and my whole background is about being in the real world with real people, engaging with people, encountering people in real life circumstances, following them as they go through their lives and asking the pertinent questions around how they anticipate, how they imagine futures, how they move forward. Traditionally, anthropology is very much about kind of being there and watching life as it unfolds. My work has taken that to a new step really because I like to also try to simulate possible future situations or engage in possible testing situations and prototyping situations to understand how people will engage with and live with technologies in situations that may not actually be happening at the moment, but that are possible. 
So that has meant working with the teams that I've worked with in Sweden to actually be with people as they experience simulated self-driving cars, driving on the roads. It's involved a project that we did with seniors in New South Wales, where a whole cohort of households were given smart home technologies that they would never have experienced otherwise. It's also involved just simulating or asking participants to invent possible future technologies, ask participants to invent future air technologies, which might purify heat and cool and dehumidify and demold and all kinds of things at the same time. We've also asked people to imagine that they were sensor technologies, measuring air quality or other things in the park in Melbourne. We get very creative in our research methods. We're really trying to understand how people would experience possible future circumstances and situations because we want to know what the future would feel like, what it feel like emotionally, what it would feel like sensorially what values people would apply to those unexpected situations they would find in the future, how they would make decisions, what values would inform their decisions. So it's very much about getting out there and working with designers, working with filmmakers, working with diverse ways of engaging with people in life. And so, as I said before, I trained as a documentary filmmaker. So video and documentary filmmaking practice has always been part of my own research technique. So not only do I get into people's real lives with them, I also take my camera, use the camera as a way of communicating with people, asking people to show me things, to imagine things with me, to demonstrate how they do things, to walk me through their lives, to walk me through their homes, walk me through their cities. And that, that's an amazing way in which to engage with people because people know how to show things to the camera and to me with the camera. So we're able to document some of those experiences as well. And, and then to obviously the major advantage of working with video and filmmaking practice is that we can then communicate those experiences to our audiences. So in the last couple of years, I've made a film, our Smart Homes the Seniors film was about how seniors experience smart home tech. Another film that I directed last year is called Digital Energy Futures, and there we explore electric vehicle charging and also mobile tech battery charging. Because again, as people have started to live in their homes more, mm. Everybody has got a home battery charging hub. Lots of people have them beside their beds. I don't know if that resonates with either of you, but there are all kinds of things we need to charge with these home-based mobile lives. We've got the AirPods, the headphones, the Kindle, the iPad, the smartphones, the self-tracking devices, and the air quality tech as well, the little portable ones. I mean, everything needs to be charged, and so do the batteries. So so the charging hub has become a super interesting part of our homes as time has gone on, which is super interesting in that film. Our films then are made to be shown at documentary and academic film festivals, but also to industry partners. So when I give the keynote, I will definitely be showing some clips from my recent films. I'm hoping to have um, something from the new film I'm working on at the moment, which is about air futures and air tech futures. I'm hoping to have some clips from that to show. I've been doing some film work with some remarkable people in everyday life situations and experts in terms of the work I've been developing for that film. So it's a very exciting field to be working in and also very exciting for us to be able to share our research, not just with academic audiences. I mean, I publish in the top journals, our academic scholarship is fundamental to all of the work we do with industry and government and other sector not-for-profit partners, because I believe that if you can't underpin your work with absolutely top quality and solid academic scholarship, then you're missing something, right? So we that's our added value as academics. But communicating that work to industry, government, and not-for-profit partners is fundamental for us. So the filmmaking practice is very important. That was shown our film to all kinds of organizations around the world, actually. 
but also we produce some um, really direct industry reports. And we like to use that format because we know that people are accustomed to it and also that it can be very direct, very concise. We've worked with illustrators in some of our recent work and our reporting, which has also been a marvellous experience to get our message across very clearly. We're very excited about the ways in which we're able to communicate with our wider audiences. And we would really very active on social media as well. We invite those audiences to engage with us and to discuss with us as well. And we do get a great response. Oh, man, that sounds so fascinating. I love the idea that your keynote's going to be covering all of this, which I could sit here and talk to you for absolutely days about, but also the fact that your keynote's going to be able to have some of the snippets of these videos to really bring those stories to life. Sarah, thanks so much for sharing that with us. Whilst we like to believe that all technology is designed being human and environmentally centered, we just know that sometimes it's actually not. And so your work is so critical to try and understand some of those implications and, and making sure that we are putting the humans into that story and into those futures around this technology, because some of the best ideas, they come down to execution. And if people aren't using things or using things in the way that they're meant to be, that we don't get the benefits from these ideas. So I love what you shared with us today. I'm really excited to go and see your talk at the Connecting Up conference. The dates, again, I'll just say what they are. They are the 10th of May to the 12th of May. I accidentally said the 13th, but you get the Saturday off now. It's the 10th of May to the 12th of May in Melbourne. We're going to put a link in the show notes to the conference website if you'd like to come along and hear Sarah and a whole heap of other amazing speakers chat about these sorts of topics. It's going to be a really exciting conference. Sarah, thanks so much for being generous with your time and sharing this amazing work that you're doing and keep it up. It's really going to benefit everybody in our society. So thanks so much. Well, thank you. Thanks both of you. It's wonderful to speak to you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Innovate for Impact podcast. Any links to what we spoke about today will be posted in the show notes. If you'd like to know more about social innovation, visit our website where we have a heap of tools to help you on your way. Visit impactoconsulting.com.au. Thanks for listening. Now go out there and make an impact.